Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. One of the things that Rogerson used to say to Chris was, look, mate, every time you've done one of your hits, you've left the body for us. He said, look, come and I'll show you what we do. That's Ray Mooney, who joins us for the second time this week. This time, he's here to tell us about his friend Chris. Chris was a teenager when they met in Pentridge Prison. It was Ray's first time in a place like that. But Chris was not long out of the notorious Morning Star Boys' home in Victoria's Mount Eliza, 
run by the brutal Franciscan brothers. Over the following decades, they maintained their close friendship as Chris, a.k.a. Christopher Dale Flannery, a.k.a. Mr. Rentakill, went on to become Australia's best-known hitman, and Ray Mooney became a published author, playwright, director and educator. Chris disappeared in 1985, and Ray says that since then, many people have taken the opportunity to say things they wouldn't have dared say when he was alive. So today, Ray sets the record straight and shares the true story of Chris Flannery's life and what he believes is the most likely truth of his death. Chris and I became very close friends. I was asked to be the best man at his wedding. At the time, I was competing in athletic championships across the other side of the country, and I I was out, so I couldn't be best man. He was best man at my wedding. Yeah, right. Later on, so we were very close. He divulged things to you that we know are very difficult for men to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about when you first met him. Um, Okay. I first met him in 1968, which was the first year I went in. He was in. He was. He had been sentenced to seven with a four for rape in company with a fellow called Laurie Prendergast. They were both young at the time, 18 at the time. Uh, they were both in B Division. I was in A Division. Now, anyone who knows anything about Pentridge is that it's delineated along the lines of um, whether you're a first-timer, whether you're a heavy crim, or whether you're, in other words, whether you're a boob head, a heavy crim, or you're a square head, a newcomer. And I was in the category of being a square head. So I was sentenced to A Division and given a very good job at the time. I was the uh, what was called a writer, which is basically a secretary uh, in a place called Amenities that did all the, pro- the prisoners' hobby material and arranged all the entertainment and sport. And a friend of Chris is also in A Division. So he said, look, mate, he said, um, he said one of my friends is um, he's dead set innocent. And uh, he said he's been... Um, He's been in the company of a bloke who is guilty, and this is Laurie Prendergast, and what they've done is they've picked up this woman, and Chris has had sex with her, not a problem in the world, and then Laurie's gone in and forced himself on her, and Laurie's pinched her purse. So when she's gone home and told her mother, the mother's gone to the police, and so and so Chris has been found guilty of raping company. So he said, look, I want you to come and meet this guy, and would you read through his transcripts? And even though I was an uh, immature and what have you, I was pretty good at reading court transcripts, something about I knew how to, to find and, and, and what have you, look for the faults. Because even though I was as guilty as hell, we, I put up a pretty good case and nearly, you know, in retrospect. Anyway, so I've met this guy. He's only young. He's, um, he's 18 and I'm 23 by then. And uh, I read through his transcripts. I said, yeah, I'll have a look through, mate, but there's probably not much I can do, you know. And he had a top lawyer at the time, Kelly, the the top lawyer, who's forever apologised to him. This is the guy who went on to run one of the uh, big commissions. He was always apologising to Chris. He said, I'm sorry, mate, you should never have got that. Anyway, so I've read through the transcripts. I said, look, uh, it doesn't look all that good, but here's a couple of points. So Chris passes it on to his lawyer, and they get a retrial in the appeal. They get a retrial. But... At court, they abuse hell out of the girl. They, they, they blow up in court. And this is what Chris was like. The guys did. Oh, yeah. Chris and Prendergast. Yeah, oh, no. oh, Chris mainly. Blew it, oh. called her a mile in front of the judge oh, and everything. Jesus. So they're fa- in front of the jury. So they're found guilty oh, no. again. Oh, my God. And get exactly the same sentence. Oh, no. Yeah. So anyway, 
that's part of the story. The rest of the story is that I'm looking after the A Division football team and, and, and within Pentridge, sport's a big deal. There were six football teams and they were full-on ferocious, absolutely. A Division was classed as a sucks and dogs. You know, we're the first time, it's the squareheads and all the goody two-shoes. Not only would we get flogged at every but they'd punch the shit out of us. And they would, all the, all the guys would sort of gang up and punch us. So I was able to get through a little bit of sort of um, smooth... I, I, I worked on the assumption, look, I'll get you into education, come down, and because I was working with the teachers at the time doing courses. I said, come down here and we'll get you into education. So I got Laurie Prendergast down, Chris Flannery, Jimmy Pappas, uh, Tommy Donald. Uh, these are all... Uh, Patty Chammings, these are all the heavy up-and-coming crims. And no one ever punched the shit out of us. No one, never again. This is how I really got him to A Division, even though I got him down for the... I got the teachers to arrange for him to come down because there was a uh, correspondence course in salesmanship. Yeah, and, wow. and he did it, and this is true. And, I, and I, we used to sit down together, and Archie Butley, I used to do his matric. He, did, he was doing matric. Because now we so, know that a lot of these guys actually uh, were, are and were, very intelligent. Oh. Probably a lot of them were uh, w- would be today diagnosed with ADHD or something of that nature. A lot of them, though, at that time were kicked out of class for being naughty or whatever because they mm. couldn't do the work, they couldn't keep up. These were well. these issues. ADHD. Yeah, totally. right. Yeah. That's so, what Chris was. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, did you find these guys actually took to the work and were really smart? It, uh, the answer is yes. It comes through the boys' homes. And this is what I've sort of explained to a lot of people that Chris was only five foot eight and there wasn't a lot of him. And he, he was a ferocious fighter and, and, and every, and because he's a good looking kid, you know, and, and, but when he was at Morning Star, he was physically and sexually abused and, 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 and those, um, juvenile delinquent centers used to work on the assumption of almost like, um, uh, they would have standover kids who were given the right to stand over. You know, had, the, the, the people that Chopper read you said Braggy was like, you know, that type of thing. But if you've ever seen a wonderful film called Scum, Ray Whitstone's... Yeah, I've first, seen that, yeah. It's well, very, very that, that system works on yeah. that you give the, 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 the bullies the right to stand over all the other kids so they do what they're told. Yeah. Well, that's how... We followed the same system. We were, we followed the Borstal system here in Australia. Yeah. So so because Chris was little, physically small. He was always fighting. And handsome. I've read um, pe- some true. people have, yeah, have, have wondered if that sort of combination made yeah. him particularly vulnerable inside the boys' totally. home. Totally, it did. And then that is what made him the fighter, actually, well, that he well, was. Well, what made him the fighter was that in the boys' homes – you are fighting every day of your life, every day. So you are having a physical fight. It's not like going to the gym and training for boxing and then you have a fight every three months or six months. These kids were fighting for their, their life every day. So so these kids learned that if they if you want to fight me, okay, watch your nose. You're going, I'm going to bite your nose or gouge your eyes. Yeah. That's exactly how they fought. None of this Marcus of Queensbury rules, they were ferocious and they were terrifying. And if there's a weapon, then that's what we use too. So... You're looking at people who are different. They've every day of their life, and that's what boys' homes did. It turned, but every boys' home only turned out about five or six of these type of people because you don't survive. But he survived. He's a, and he was a ferocious fighter. He really was. So, so why do yeah. you? How was it then that Pentridge, that H Division, 
affected him so badly? Oh, because he went down to Hastings Division when he was 18. He went down six times. He was in prison twice, by the way. He got out after serving the minimum for the rape in in company uh, thing. And then he was committed, he was found guilty of conspiracy to rob a bank, plus the added broken parole of what he had to serve. So he went back again for nearly five years. So he had two separate occasions. On the first occasion, he was in Pentridge. He was in Hates Division six odd times, and they were basically for fighting. And when I say that they broke him, here's what happened to him. And by the way... um, let me jump a little bit here, just, just jump a little bit to put it in the context so you'll know th- what I'm trying to explain. When I I went down the Hays Division a little bit later myself and had a pretty bad time, so I decided, right, I'm, I'm going to reveal to the world what this rotten place is like. Even though they'd had a Royal Commission and all that type of thing, I wanted to take it further. So before I was released, I asked everyone who I knew who were, who were my friends who had been in haste division, would you write your story for me? I don't want you to lying about it. I just want your story. And when you give it to me, if you don't mind, I will check it through and, and ask you questions. So uh, Stan Taylor, uh, who blew up Russell Street, uh, Chris, who went on to become Renticular, Archie Butley, the, 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 the guy who blew his way out of the remand centre with Peter Gibb. Oh. Uh, and finish up getting and Heather the uh, prison guard, Heather, guard Heather yeah. Parker, mm. um, and probably about fifteen to twenty others. I put those stories as I wrote them. I didn't change anything into that book called The Ethics of Evil, and that is a, that is a history of hate division. With the, and it's a, it's an ebook. You can only get it as an ebook. And I, I put all their stories in the appendixes. So their stories, as I wrote them, are there. Chris has affected me that much that I wrote the play every night, every night from it. And I wrote it from what he wrote. And he told the truth. He told me how when he went down there, he said that he said they broke me. And by his definition of broke, it means that he had agreed to the rules and regulations under which Hate's Division operated. In other words, you had to uh, quick march, had to salute, had to wear a hat. You were never allowed to look up. Had to look down at the ground, find your spot, break rocks all during the in the in the day if you're in the labour yards. You were treated terribly. Now and give your name all the time and what have you. The moment you agreed to do that, you had accepted that that's how it operated, and that's what he was always crooking himself that he accepted it. And that's his definition of them breaking. What happened if you don't accept it? Oh, they will punch the shit out of you. And then if you come out fighting every day, which a few people did, Mm. they had a way of getting the psychiatrist to certify you to jaywalk our rat. And it was like one floor of the cooker's nest, your prison sentence stopped when you're in jaywalk our rat. Your sentence doesn't go on. Oh, no. They They had it over you. There's no way you could have defeated them. No way in the world. The following is an excerpt from Ray Mooney's book, The Ethics of Evil, Stories of Age Division, and it's told from the perspective of Christopher Dale Flannery. I came into prison in early 1968, aged 18 on the rape charge. Bail was refused, so I had to stay in the boys' yard. I was there about six months, and I got into a fight with a guy in the yard named Lance Knight. I knocked him out and left him laying in the yard. 
The screws ran in and gave it to me with the buttons, Wagner, Banner, and a couple of others that I can't remember. They threw me in the bear cell, which is also known as the observation cell, and kept me there for a few days locked up with nothing, naked and handcuffed to bars. I was brought before the governor, Grindley, and he asked me what had happened. I told him that nothing had happened, and it was all a big misunderstanding. He started screaming that I was a standover, and he was sending me to H Division to get a bit of my own treatment. I informed him that by law he couldn't do that as I was not a sentenced prisoner. He called me a bush lawyer, and I told him to get fucked. Two screws came into the office and handcuffed me and walked me across the jail to H. One of them was Banner. I was taken into reception. As soon as I walked in the door, I was king hit by Evans and bashed on the back of the head by Banner. Then they started to kick me in the lower back. I was still handcuffed. They picked me up and undid my handcuffs, and I think it was Curl who hit me on the jaw and dropped me against the back wall. I called Curl a dog and both Evans and Curl gave it to me again. I got a good serve this time for about 10 minutes. I stripped off and changed into their prison clothes and was taken to the circle. I was told to march around the mats, which I did because I was shitting myself. There was a screw in each corner and Evans ran behind me smashing me across the back, elbows and legs with a baton. I was also smashed at each corner. I think I went around half a dozen times or so. I had a blood nose and a split lip. I was taken to a cell and locked up. The next morning after the bell rang for stand two, they opened my door and a couple of screws came in. It was lended a tipping. They proceeded to tell me how dirty my cell was and how my blankets were folded wrongly. I was standing at ease and tipping ripped me in the guts, but I was expecting it, so it didn't connect properly. He called me a fucking smarty and I asked him what I was expected to do. Stand there and get bashed, sir? They both went into a frenzy at this and Leonard punched me in the back of the head while tipping kept ripping me in the guts. They went out leaving me on the floor. About five minutes later, my door was opened again and I was told to step out. Leonard and Tipping were there with Kerr. I was asked if I had any requests and I requested to know why I was in H Division when I didn't have a prison sentence. Kerr started letting a few go at my head, then told me that I was to appear before the VJ on a charge of assaulting a fellow prisoner. I asked him when that would be and he told me in nine days. I was marched down to the labour yards. As you go down the steps where the books are, Evans was waiting for me and was further down the corridor. Well, they gave it to me again and threw me in the labour yards. Comma was up on top, in the catwalk, and he told me he would be down later to give it to me. This went on so many times, Ray, that it would take pages and pages to tell you everything. The worst bashes at the time were Evans, Dixon, Snooks, Colmer, Kerr, Tipping, and Leonard. There were more, but at the moment I can't recall them. I'm not even sure if Ackland was there then or not. I appeared before the VJ Dylan, and I knew enough to ask that it be heard in an outside court. He refused, saying that it was an internal matter and it would be dealt with here. He asked me how I pleaded, and I said not guilty. Then Banner got up and said how he had witnessed my assault on this guy, and what a standover I was. Needless to say, I was found guilty of assault and sentenced to six weeks in prison. I didn't appeal because, to tell you the truth, I never even thought of it at the time. I thought Chopper lived in there. Nah. In H Division. Oh, not lived in there, but you've, here's the other thing that we need to put into perspective. Uh, Chopper was never there when the bash was on. He was never there in the bad days, ever. Right. Like, he's a kid. When, when, we, when I'm talking about it, like if you've ever read one of Chopper's books, he says, oh, that weak dog, Flannery, uh, they put me next to him in C Division to scare the shit out of him the week. 
can't refuse to even come out of his cell. Chopper was about 12 when that <laughs> happened, you know, when you go back. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was actually uh, 16. But he didn't know, he'd never met Chris, but he's written this whole story about him. You know, I had a go at Chopper. Chopper came along to the play every night, every night. I said, mate, I said, <laughs> I said, I like Chopper. But he was I, the first like to him. admit that it was, there was oh, a lot of bullshit. And, and I, you know, yeah. I said, mate, I, I don't mind the stuff you, you write. Good on you, you know, like, but why'd you say that about Chris? You know, he didn't deserve that. He said, right, I didn't write that. Sylvester wrote it. Sorry, that's exactly what he said. Yeah. And Adam Shan wrote that in his book, by the way. We just need to look at this different time period. When it first started, in the early six, in the early fifties, uh, because of the escape of a fellow called Bill O'Mealy, uh, it was a ferocious place. Why up until probably 70, 1970, when there were prison riots about the brutality and hate division, mm. and simultaneously, and this is where a lot of people don't give due respect, Chris Flannery's brother. Eddie Flannery was a lawyer oh. who was also running the Council of Civil Liberties. And because he knew how Chris had been treated in Hates Division, he had drawn an amazing amount of media attention to what happened in Hates Division. It's a really underrated area. I, there's a couple of good journalists who did go out of their way oh, and, and wrote a lot about Hates Division at the time, but mainly through Ed. Ed was the driving force, giving them all. And, and we were sort of getting information out to Ed all the time of what was actually happening. So there was a campaign outside, and, and that campaign outside was putting pressure upon the leaders inside Pentridge to do something also. And that's when Chris decided that he and his mates would go down the hates of vision and destroy the place. So... Six of them decided that they would all get themselves sent down and take the system on. Unfortunately, what happened was that Chris went down and by abusing one of the, the chief in the C division, which is where he was at the time, and the others, through whatever circumstances, waited a week before they came down. Um, but he was down there carrying on and trying to get the system going, uh, trying to get all the prisoners to riot. And, and join him, which they wouldn't do, which you, you got, but, uh, but no, like, uh, there is uh, no blame whatsoever on them. If you'd been in haste division, you know, it, it was, you got the shit punched out of you. No, like, I, I've never ever blamed anyone for anything they ever did or didn't do in haste division. You had to be there to know how bad it was. In in and amongst all of this, Chris Flannery. So we we get we're getting the gist of how this man was broken, even though he lived through as a child or a teenager lived through the boys' homes. When you both got out, now you're saying you unfortunately couldn't be the best man at his wedding, but he was best man at your wedding. But his wife Kathleen Flannery, a fascinating couple they were. I read that that he was absolutely devoted to her. He was, um, and, that and they, his kids. Yeah, and his kids. Mm. Some reports say that she was actually quite a sort of a, uh, definitely a powerful personality. Mrs. Fengal, yeah. No, I've read all those reports or Mrs. McDuff and whatever. Look, um, she was never involved in Chris's heavy crimes. She would have been aware, but not involved. Um, they oh, they tried to charge her over the Roger Wilson murder. They, In fact, they did, I think, and then they had to drop it. 
Roger Wilson was a lawyer who disappeared that Chris Flannery ultimately was charged with with two other people, Kevin Weary Williams and uh, and another lawyer. Oh, God, he's, I forget his name. But was that no, the one where a key witness disappeared during the yes, trial and so yes. the trial fell over? No, the trial didn't fall over because of that. Uh, she disappeared before evidence could be given. That's right. Yes. Yes, yes. And, and, and I remember talking to Chris about, and, and he gets the blame for organising it when he's in prison. He said, mate, he said, no one ever looked at who I was charged with. Yeah. You know, just really sad in a way. So he, did, he didn't end up convicted for that? Oh, there was no one that's ever, they've never ever known whether or not, you know. They're, they're, for that lawyer? Yeah, no, no, they, he, he gets he gets found not guilty on, on the Roger Wilson um, trial, Sorry. yeah. Because the key witness disappeared from the hotel. Well, no, I'm saying because of that, but that was yeah. a, a factor. That was a in factor. In that trial. But before she disappeared, mm. she had given statutory declarations to mm. their lawyers This is uh, that that she was bashed, and that was the only reason right. she said that, and she withdrew that. Right. We, you never get that information no, added to when, when we talk about that. No. Ever, you know? No. You will not hear a bloody word against Christopher Dale Flannery. I won't. I will, but I but at the same time I'll put it into into perspective. Well, it's I good to that. get the actual yeah. the the stuff in between, as you said earlier. You know, the stuff in between. There's what's well, said in the media. There's other stuff, and this is you know. Look, it goes against the narrative. Put it that way, the, the mm. narrative that there's like you know, Blue Murder, all the books yes. that have been written about him. It, it goes against the the narrative. I'm assuming you asked me at some stage about jury being shot. Absolutely. Oh, then no, you go oh, ahead and, and tell us now because, I mean... Oh, you can cut it Yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. Um, because it's sort of, yeah, when you are a, a close friend, maybe yeah. the only... Oh, no, I wouldn't say the only close friend, but the only close friend willing to talk, uh, you know, uh, um, openly and a close friend who's as um, erudite as you are, of a man who is so mythologised negatively so yeah. as Christopher Flannery... Yeah, there is so much um, responsibility for you, isn't there? Because the narrative is so entrenched yeah. in our culture and it is so one-sided, so one-way that, yeah, there, are, there is no doubt a lot for you to clear up. There, is, there yeah. are no doubt many, many, many details that you must be itching all the time to add any time his name is brought up, yeah. like the details you're, you've already peppered in for us. Look, it's, um, I'm the first to admit that uh, he was good at what he did, and and he did, he did a lot of willing things, and a few people are uh, buried because of that. I'm the first to admit it, but at the same time, I look at the the narrative that is there, as you were saying, mm. that argues that he did it to his best friends for money, uh, that there's people that he killed, and he was char- when in fact the evidence will suggest. Hang on, let's look at the evidence before you really accept that that's how bad he was. Mm. That's not to say he wasn't bad. Mm. It's just to put it into realistic terms, because the narrative that he killed so many people, and that he was such a bad type of person, and that comes from crims too, which is what disappoints me as much as it does coming from, you know, from uh, police. You know, there are crims who have written books on and, and put him in that same category, which I find really disappointing, very disappointing. Well, I find there are, there are a couple of things that crims will say or people will say, either, nah, it's all bullshit, he, wasn't, he didn't really yeah. kill that many people, he yeah. made up, you know, his own nickname and he, he was always talking himself up and he was full of shit, or the other one is that, oh, yeah, he'd kill anyone, he'd kill his best mate, he'd kill anyone yeah. for money. 
So there's both sides of it and, and neither of them flattering. There aren't many people who like you who will come yeah. out and talk about him as a, a friend. Do they get jealous of each other, Crims? We've heard people say Crims are the biggest gigs, isn't it? The sort of gossips, they love the yeah. drama. But as, is there jealousy among prisoners, someone like, say, Chopper or Christopher is getting a lot of attention? Where's my attention? What's this? Like what's what drives it? You have put uh, – you've – come up with a really good point that hasn't that I haven't heard before yet it's and here's what I want to just add to what you've said if you think of indigenous culture you know how if you want to tell stories there are people who own the stories and you've got to be very careful because you own the stories that's what crims are like they honestly think they own the stories and because of that there's 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 so much bullshit there is so much exaggeration. There's, hang on, what about me? Here's the spotlight, shine it here. And as a result, it's really hard. And that's why I don't really, I, I understand the media getting the narrative wrong because there's so many people are putting out their own personal narratives because they think they own the stories. And I understand that that's exactly how people look at me. I can totally understand that. But the truth is that a lot of it's bullshit. After the break... Our guest Ray Mooney tells us how it all fell apart for Chris Flannery and no bullshit. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To tell the story of his friend Chris Flannery's demise, our guest Ray Mooney is going to go further back and into more detail than I think anyone ever has done before. He's also dropping a few names that can't be left out of the story as he sees it. One of those names is Paul Higgins, who was a high-profile member of Victoria Police in the 1970s and 80s. His is a very long story, but all you need to know for the moment is that he was convicted of taking bribes in 1993. He was alleged to have accepted bribes on a regular basis from 1978 to 1982 from a well-known Melbourne brothel owner called Jeff Lamb. Higgins categorically denied the allegations right up until his death in 2016. Ray mentions another former member of Victoria Police in his version of events, 
who is still very much alive and has never been convicted of a crime. So we've concealed that person's name. Just so you won't be confused, it is the same person mentioned every time. He, he finishes up getting shares in Mickey's Disco. That's where he got into all his strife with and Paul Higgins at Mickey's Disco. He had he and Kathy, his wife, they had 10% of the shares of it. And I used to walk, work on the door as, you know, like a body security guard, bouncer type of thing. No one knew that Mickey's had been set up by the police. You've got to give them total credit for it, total credit. Set up certain police who were totally trusted, to work with and infiltrate criminals. And they did it with Dennis Allen. You know, you'll hear all this, Not you've probably done this, I don't know, but you'll hear all this nonsense how Dennis Allen was a big informer. Dennis Allen, you, anyone who tells you that, ask him to show you one of the information sheets where he informed on anyone. He was given bail continuously because they had illegally tapped his phones. They didn't want him in. They wanted him out. And, and this was all... You know, this was completely okay at the top level because they had all his phones and all his friends' people's phones. They were tapping all this information. That all went into informer sheets. Oh, Dennis Allen's an informer. You know, like it's, that's the narrative. And, and it's hard to go against that because every copy you ever talk to will tell you Dennis Allen is an informer. It's become very you know? embedded in oh, Melbourne we history. About. Totally, totally, yeah. totally. Um, that is the narrative. And it's yeah. anyway, back to Mickey. So, what no one knows. Is that Mickey's is run by a fellow called Ron Feeney. Now, Ron Feeney is a Sydney crimp who has been given, I think, three years for being a coat hanger, which is a person who passes dud checks. He had killed someone on a dance floor, Jackie Hodder, uh, and um, because Lenny McPherson had told him that people were going around calling you an informer, this guy. So he goes and stabs him on the dance floor, not charged. No one knows at this stage he's not charged because he's a bloody informer, but no one knows. But he gets brought undone by passing dud checks and he has to do time. He is released on parole. This is the first time it has ever happened in the history of Australia. He is released on parole from Sydney into the jurisdiction of... Now, that was unheard of. When that was brought up in court at Chris Flannery's trial for the killing of Loxley because Feeney had behind the scenes given Chris Flannery up for it. When it's brought up, the judge doesn't believe it. There's no way. So they've got to go and prove. No, he was released into the parole officer jurisdiction of... Now, we don't know. No one knows this. But no one knows it. So... Kathy, first of all, starts doing the books at Mickey's. She's a very clever person, Kathy. In fact, she was Phil Dunn's assistant before all this. He was a QC, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, Phil, probably um, the top criminal yeah. lawyer at the moment. Yeah, yeah. With Richter. Phil yeah, Dunn yeah. and Richter would probably be Victoria's two best lawyers. Mm. Um, anyway, Kathy's very, very clever. She's the accountant down at Mickey's Disco. Uh, and she finishes up bringing Chris down. So Chris gets a job on the door as a bouncer uh, and working behind the bar and all that type of thing and trying to work out how come all these cops are there all the time. like And and, and it's who had been charged with killing a very close friend of Chris's, a fellow called Colin Byrne, who was a very good friend. So there's, there's friction and bad blood, but no one knows that Mickey's has been set up so that Feeney 
can allow all the police in all the time and they use it to infiltrate crims to get them on side to find out what's happening. Oh, Chris finishes up getting 10% of the shares in Finney. He buys 10%. So he's got investments in the uh, in, in Mickey's Disco. He finds out that Higgins and have both been given $200 per week uh, as um, uh, money. And it's in the books So he, because they had two sets of books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's got, he's got, to got access to them because he's one of the bloody guys who's doing all the things. And Kathy knows. So, so. When he finds out, he bars. He says, right, you're barred. He bars all the coppers. Chris and, did. Oh, did he ever? Oh, and, and this is where it all fell in. This yeah. is, this, this, that was the biggest mistake. That was the first mistake he made. Yeah. He didn't know. He had no idea that, that, that it had been set up. But the other thing was none of the other coppers knew either. This is something that other coppers didn't know. So whenever you say this to coppers, they say, oh, don't talk shit. Okay, well, you just go and have a look at some transcripts where you'll see. And if you want to validate what I'm saying, there are transcripts in the Loxley murder that Chris Flannery was charged with. Loxley was a, um, a gangster from Sydney? A gangster from Sydney who had yeah. been sent down to set up a brothel in Ackland Street and run it called the Embassy. Yep. And if you know the history of Paul Higgins, mm-hmm. you can see why they've fallen out. Mm. Because, because Higgins he, is with the guy who was sort of running, running that all the part of it. Yeah. Well, not running it so much, but standing over them all. Mm-hmm. Higgins was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally standing over it. And it was, and it was very – and there was, the, there was what you call police patronage. In other words, there was protection. You can't just get, walk in and do what you want to do. So Loxley falls out with the police. The first murder that Chris is charged with is Roger Wilson. Remember the lawyer we talked yeah. about? Okay, in timelines, that happened after the murder of Loxley. Oh. Loxley is murdered first. Oh. Then Roger Wilson disappears. Chris is charged with Roger Wilson and two other people are charged with him at the same time. Mm. He beats that. Mm-hmm. The day he beats it, police come up with these statements that supposedly Chris had made two years prior where he has indicted himself for killing Loxley. Mm. They're not they're, – two years later that they – and you can check court transcripts if anyone ever wants to go and verify what I'm saying. So – and supposedly comes up with the fact that Chris has confessed to him that he was – yeah, he drove this guy to Sydney and what have you. Now, that ends up in a mistrial. He hasn't beat it at, at, at the first trial. In the interim, Chris has become very close friends with Roger Rogerson. He becomes very close friends with Rogerson because the rumour was that he'd been asked to put Nettie Smith off. And Nettie Smith is Rogerson's right-hand man. Yeah, yeah. So they, Rogerson gets them all together. Uh, Rogerson had had dealings with Chris earlier, way back in the 70s, when Chris was... After his release from the rape charge, he's been charged with conspiracy to commit a, a crime, uh, to commit a bank robbery here in Melbourne. And so therefore he's shot through to Western Australia. And having done his salesmanship course, yes. has gone to Western Australia and got a really good job as a buyer for David Jones. But he realises that there's a screw who's seen him there, so he's disappeared. 
But in the interim, he and Archie Buckley and Robin Holt have robbed David Jones. And in the robbing of David Jones, a security guard is shot in the stomach. Bad robbery, really bad robbery. So the world's fallen in and Chris has shot through with Archie to Sydney. And th- I'm not going to mention how it happened, but he, he that they realise that they're in Sydney. Rogerson goes to effect an arrest on a railway station when they've gone to pick up some uh, some stuff that's been sent to them, and an incredible fight's broken out between them. But the police have outnumbered uh, Chris and Archie, so they've been taken back. Now Rogerson's there in charge of what's happening, and there's uh, a detective with a pretty big reputation of being pretty tough and he's sort of loud mouthing off in front of Chris and Chris just goes bang and breaks his jaw. Rogerson made out he didn't break his jaw but he did. So that's how Rogerson knows that this is a willing guy. So but then so years after that event uh, Rogerson decides to friend up with Chris. So we're we're in Sydney this is after everything's happened in Melbourne we're in Sydney and this is when Chris becomes friends with Rogerson and Nettie. Yes, and they become very close. Yes. They do. Very, very close. Uh, Chris trusted Rogerson with his life. Mm. He, he did totally. He really trusted him. Um, yeah. So what went wrong then? Because he wasn't in Sydney long, was he? Uh, no, he died in f- uh, 85. Yeah. So, um, and that's four years, I think. Four, but he terrorised him. He, he, he was... Um, a little bit more willing than most. He thought that, they, the, again, like being in prison, he thought the old guard had had their day. Mm. Um, and he was working with um, uh, a guy who ran two casinos to start with and then moved into working with George Freeman, who put him on retainer. Uh, and, and, and how Sydney worked then were there were groups, the Anderson Group at the Cross, uh, the... Uh, uh, George Freeman's group who did all the betting and, and had a lot of the brothels and then there's Lenny McPherson who also sort of was involved in they, they all cross over but you've got to get permission if you want to set up in any area you've it's, it's all franchised very very carefully underpinned by the police totally underpinned by the police you can't do anything in Sydney if you get the police offside no way in the world uh, totally different different than Melbourne and you have to sort of work within those limits. But Chris thought that they were their day was coming. Rogerson did too. He was he knew that the, the big money was ultimately in not having to bring these people into it all. And the other thing about Rogerson, he was very smart. People under, I think sometimes it's easier for us to criticise the guy without realising that apart from understanding how security cameras work, he yeah, was I know really what you smart. mean. I think he's ended up looking <laughs> looking very silly, but I think it's, it's it, you can't underestimate how at the time. I mean, this bloke's winning medals for yeah, his, bravery. his conduct, bravery, yeah, yeah. and for being the best copper in in Sydney in New South Wales. While he's running a corrupt empire, I mean, he was ingenious yeah. in his day, and, and he was too. Mm. They, some of the things they did were really good, yeah. and they were really clever. Mm. You know, you'll never read about them or hear about them because no one knows. That's how good they were, and yeah. they're the good ones, the ones that you'd never know about. And they they pulled off some very good stunts. They really did, and and it was that thing about being willing and capable. There's there's a difference. There's a lot of willing people around. A lot of look at how UFC has brought out willing people. Yeah, but you've got to be capable. I'm not surprised then that Roger Rogerson got had a moment where he thought I'm smarter than all these blokes. I and now I've got yeah. I've got Chris Flannery. I've got 
the most willing bloke there is in the country. Why am I asking permission? Well, here's the other thing that we need to factor in, that being allowed to do that at the time, it was almost the thing about having the green light. Okay, the green light they talk about is giving Crims right to pull off uh, jobs and what have you. But the other green light was the Rogersons of the world at the top level were also given that power mm. to get involved with the Nettie Smiths and the Chris Flannerys. What happened was Rogerson took it a step further yeah. and he brought it all undone. Those were the he consorting squad road. days, wasn't it? Totally, yeah. yeah. He went yeah, a step so. too far. So- and he did. He- Pushed his luck. Oh, he was in line for commissioner. There's no doubt he was in line for commissioner. Or well, they put it this way: the rank and file wanted him, as because he had their respect. But there's something about, you know, what hit you get from what you're actually capable of, unless others can see what you've achieved. Yes. You sometimes don't get that hit. I you, you really don't. And people think it's so maybe about the money, but it's not oh, about the money, the, is it? It's about the power and the kind of... Um, yeah. And the way you set it up and, and the cleverness. Was Chris's ego getting out of control as well, do you think? I mean, that's, again, part of the narrative that he was full of himself. I think it's a himself. fair comment. Uh, it, it, the, the one thing that Chris found it hard to do was to walk away from abuse or from severe criticism, or to bite your tongue and wait for another day. His, he achieved everything by being true to himself, and that was confrontational and, and jumping straight in. That's how he achieved everything. And he used to say, look, I, why would I change? You know, th- This works for me. These guys aren't as courageous as I am. That's not. another classic you know? uh, boys' home yeah. thing, isn't it, too? Yeah. A lot ADHD, of guys, impulse control. A lot of guys yeah. say, oh. you know, I'll just jump straight in. I'll just... I don't wait. I'm not having a conversation. And, I'm just going to get straight in there and, and finish it. And that's what it. happens. And mm. it doesn't matter. You know, you can be in the best restaurant, mm. which is what happens. This is what happens. You, know, you can be in the best restaurant surrounded by the nicest people and someone does the wrong thing and bang. No one cares. It's just you're into it. Yeah. That's the area where I always thought there was a little bit more maturity and a bit more education that needed to sort of so that you learn how to sustain it yeah, and, and endure it. And unfortunately, it's hard for people, their upbringing. That's know, it. It really is. The and same, you're not the opportunity yeah. to funnel your, you know, skills or the way your you work. Set. I'm thinking of, you know, like things like ADHD and that into things that are positive, but um, the brutality of those childhoods, it's, I don't know, I just can't even. It, it funnels it horrible. into the worst possible pathways, doesn't it? Yeah. So do you think, yeah. is, is that is that what ended up uh, sort of working towards his demise? Was it was it his the way that he um, handled himself in Sydney? Did that start it, to rack up against him? It was the, the thing that, this is opinion, yep. it's opinion, that worked to his demise was trusting explicitly Rogerson and never seeing any fault. Uh, that worked because ultimately that's what brought him undone totally. Um, it was underestimating the fact that the groups that he was sort of having a go at 
could all come together. And the Freemans, who was supposedly his his friend and got him on retainer, the McPhersons, who also used him, and then the Barry McCann group, who were the up-and-comers sort of fighting both those groups, would all get together under the auspices of the police who controlled the whole scene. So it's never as simple as that's what put you off. And the other thing that the last thing that factored into it was that Chris wasn't the type of character who could walk away from that. Like we had, uh, the last conversation I had with him was, mate, you know, you know they're going to put you off. He said, I know that, Ray. I said, well, look, just go overseas, come back when everything. He said, that's yeah. not in my nature, mate. And, and it's true. No, there's no way in the world. There's no way really? in the world he had that in him. He just would not. When you yeah. say put and you off, what does that mean? I'll kill you. Okay, I thought so. Yeah, I just so thought, I just wanted to. Yeah. No, so he no. wouldn't even back down, right? Even Yeah, when, I mean, no. that's so. Even um, when he knew. You know. Yeah, because he had plenty of money. He had a wife he adored and who adored him and he had kids he adored as well. And he wouldn't just. Just go away and let the things cool off to come, you know, no, then he could come back? It, it, it was not in his nature. Right. He said the moment that they tried to kill him, Kathy, and his 12-year-old daughter, Christine, he said that was it. He said, I'm not going to let that go. He said, he said I'm going to kill them. And, and he would have. He would have. Yeah, but he also knew that eventually his time would, one way or another. He actually thought that they didn't have the dash, so to speak, that um, he had, and he would always be good enough to to defeat them. So that's, I suppose, what you were saying before. Yeah. Is that a fault? It's a fault when you get beaten. It's not a fault when you win. That's so you true, know, isn't it's, it? It's sort of, it's, and because he had won every time. I mean, he'd exactly. been up against incredible yeah. odds since he was a little boy. And always yeah. come out on top yeah. by being himself. yeah. And never doing what others told himself. him that they wanted him to do. Why, and, why do you think he was so trusting of Rogerson? Was it a far paternal figure type of thing? Rogerson was a bit older than him, right? Uh, yes, but they'd pulled off some pretty good scams. The, the, you, too many people living to really go into it properly, but they had done some pretty good things, and uh, and he trusted him explicitly. And Rogerson ran the town, man. He, you yeah. know, he ran Sydney. And also, like he'd given him good advice. Rogerson had really given him really good advice, and yeah, and and then the jury thing sort of brought it all undone, which sort of made matters hot, too hot for them all. Too hot. Um, yeah. So in that, the, a couple of months before he disappeared. And it is still a disappearance, yeah. really, but you know, technically. Yeah. Um, Chris was sent to kill Tony Spaghetti Eustace. Well, that's the narrative. It is the narrative. Oh, what do you? What's incorrect about that? Well, um, first of all, Chris had been offered money to kill Sayers, Mick Sayers. Freeman wanted Sayers put off because he reneged on um, paying um, some money he owed. And he was a gambler. Mick was a bad gambler. And Freeman had the casinos. Um, he said, mate, he said, I'm not going to put him off. He's my friend. Why would I do that? Now, I've explained this to other people before. Many, when he was in Victoria working at Mickey's, he got into the company of a detective called who was a very oh, devious type of detective. And he would get a lot of paid jobs for Chris. And uh, one of the jobs he got was through insurance companies to give um, a serve because 
is causing terrible trouble with concrete pores going stiff in the barrel and he's creating unbelievable hassles through the um, not the painters and doggers, the yeah, labourers, builders, labourers, yeah. And Chris said, "Why would I? Why would I? Why would I do anything to him? He's a good bloke. Why would I want to fucking hit it? You know, give it to him." And he refused to do it. Now, Eustace was a friend of his. Eustace was giving him information that no one else would give him. He was supplying him with uh, cash funds, and he was supplying him when he needed weapons. Plus, he was a friend. They were close. There is no way in the world that Chris would have killed you. There's no, and there's no evidence to suggest he did. So if you, th- this this idea yeah. that he was uh, that he took on the job to kill Tony Spaghetti in inverted commas, Eustace, this, is part of the narrative to discredit Chris after his death. This actually came from Nettie Smith. Okay, right. Nettie Smith said, you know, like he wanted to disassociate himself. Chris is gone, and he knows he's gone. Yeah, he needs to disassociate himself, so he starts. Writing about how bad he was, he'd kill his own money for his own friends for this, and it was bullshit. Like it was the opposite. It was that thing of you get you, you get your cottery on side by bagging someone who everyone else bags. So naturally, we bag Chris Flannery. the The evidence was that it was um, that, that that someone had a, Chris was supposed to meet Eustace in the Hilton Hotel. So he's waiting in the Hilton Hotel at seven. Eustace goes and meets someone on the way there who pulls up in a gold Mercedes. Now, the only person who had a gold Mercedes in Sydney at the time was George, George Freeman. Freeman. So whoever wanted to let it be nut, they wanted everyone to think, oh, Freeman's killed him. And it wasn't Freeman. It was because Freeman didn't do things like that. He got other people to do it. Because so, the other part of the narrative is that Chris was on his way to meet Freeman. No, that's when he disappears. That's what I mean, when he yeah. disappears. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. Right, so this is pulling Freeman in again. So is that true? <laughs> that's true, That uh, is it? it? It's true that he potentially was going to go and see Freeman. Right. Tony was killed? Oh, Tony, Tony was killed. He was, he Tony was shot Eustace in the back was shot. six shot. times. And he tells, they he, he whispers in the ear of the police when they ask who did it to you and he says, fuck off. And I've always maintained there's no way he even knew who did it. He was shot in the back. And he would have known who arranged to meet him. But he wouldn't have known who pulled the trigger. But he didn't speak anyway. And so no. six, 16 days later, Chris is supposed to meet George Freeman. Yes. And uh, after his car wouldn't start. Yes, that's right. Chris's and boss. That's all true. That's all true. Chris's boss. By that, do they mean George? Yes, definitely Freeman. Yes. George uh, Freeman told him to take a taxi. That's right. To their meeting place. Yeah. And that was the last time that he's seen anyone's alive. admitted yeah. to having yeah. spoken to Chris. Yeah. Look, it's um, because, and and I'm as guilty as anyone else here now, What you, I'm surmising, and I really don't know because I was not there. I assume that police he knew pulled up and, uh, and, and offered him a lift and he got in the car. That's what I assume. Uh, I can't see it happening any other way. Because uh, the, there's no taxi records or anything oh, like that. Well, there is a taxi driver who comes forward and says he took him to the airport, but that was total bullshit. Right. Yeah. Uh, mm. No, uh, I'm surmising, but the, the, he always, we talked about what was going to happen, you know, and he said, there's no way they'll get me, mate. He said, I, I, he said, they won't. He said, straight away, he said, I'll be into them. So I, I and he's, and remember, he's hiding at the time and thinking and waiting for who is for South for him. And at the same time, he's searching for them. It's not just that he's hiding. Why is that? Is that over the um, Eustace shooting? Does he already no, at that point? No, not over the Eustace shooting. It's so, over them sh- trying to kill him. 
He already just with his daughter next to him and his wife. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which uh, there'd which already was, been an attempt on his life. Yeah, and in broad daylight and out the front of his house, which is unheard of. Did he know who that attempt was made by? At the time, he didn't know. He had no idea. Mm. And I've said this before, so I'll say it again. Um, I, um, the federal police had everyone on the tap. They were tapping everyone's phone, and Chris never even knew. He, like he should have known, but all his everyone was off. Everyone, they, they all politicians, everyone, lawyers, the whole lot. They had every, all these illegal phone taps. Ultimately, they had to destroy them, but they actually had them. So Rogerson says, "Look, give us a grand mate, and, and I'll show you the transcripts. What we've got." And and I was at his place that time, but not when this was actually being shown. I was out the back, and. Um, they show him transcripts of Barry McCann arguing with uh, Tom Dominican about how the uh, the hit was botched on Chris, and they were arguing about it. And that's the first time Chris knew. And and when Rogerson went, I said, I said, I said, I said you might have just paid a grand for the best creative writing in the police force. You don't know. You really don't know because that's what they did. You know, they did, that's how clever they were. They really did. So he didn't know, but let's just say they were the true transcripts, and he did know. So that's what he thinks. That's what he believes. So that's when he goes after Tom Dominican and his gang, and there's shootings in the street, and you probably read all about that. Um, so he knows that they're after him and he's after them. So it's who gets in who first. The only way they're going to do it is if they know where he is. And at the stage, he's hiding out in the Connaught Hotel, which is in Darlinghurst, mm-hmm. opposite police headquarters. <laughs> Straight out <laughs> the Raven Police Headquarters. He's got binoculars and checking everything out. But they, Rogerson arranges a meeting. He's, this is the most sus meeting of all time. He mm. says, look, come and talk to these people about this jury shooting. I want to put this... So, so he brings along these top coppers and Chris and doesn't jury, want to go. jury was a copper. Um, who who was uh, he was shot at? There was an yes. attempted assassination, attempted shooting of of jury. And, and if you want, to, I'll give you information on that one. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall—whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray Five in One gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And that sort of gives you a total number narrative to what's been answered. That was a blue, in Blue Murder, wasn't it? It the, most certainly yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's been yeah. in a lot of um, yeah. docos and what have you. At his home, right? It was. It happened it, when he was at home with his family? Yes. Jury? Yeah, yeah. happened um, at night time, 6 o'clock yeah. at night. Um, so anyway, uh, Chris goes to this meeting reluctantly and... That's when they followed him. They followed him home. They, they know where he is. So it, they don't know where he's living at the time. Even Rogerson didn't know. He wouldn't like he trusted Rogerson, but he wouldn't trust anyone except Kathy as mm. to where he was. And he trusted me. Um, do you think it's a, the story that I think is is the most sort of popular part of the narrative that we keep talking about? Is that he went out on a boat? Um, was killed on a boat and yeah. then thrown over the no. side. Don't you think that's what happened? No. Um, that happened to a fellow called Brian Alexander, who was a, right. a law clerk who was working for all the coppers and had actually worked done the uh, law clerking in the Loxley murder for Chris. Huh. Now, Brian Alexander ripped off Nettie Smith, uh, 50 grand, twined him for 50 grand and didn't pay it all back. Uh, and the folklore is that he was taken out in the boat, uh, like as a police barbecue on a boat. Yeah. And dumped overboard. No, nothing that to wasn't do with Chris. Chris. Nothing to do with Chris, no. What do you think happened to Chris? Oh, um, I've always, and and I'm surmising, one of the things that Rogerson used to say to Chris was, look, mate, every time you've done one of your hits, you've left the body for us. How, how smart are you? And he said, look, come and I'll show you what we do. No, this is true. Wow. So he takes him to the furnace in a, um, uh, what is it, those um, wood yards, you know, oh. where they burn the guns. Okay. The, the, the furnace where they burn the guns, melt all the guns down. And that they seize, nothing, right? Is that, it? The seized guns. Well, the guns are either seized or they are under, um, you have a an amnesty mm. and you can bring your guns in and, and, and every so often... The ones that they want to, the ones that they're not going to resell, the ones that they want to, they'll go and burn. And that's officially through the furnace. Everything's got to be officially through the furnace. But I think a few other things have been put through there. No trace, right? If we think that our police forces went up to that, we're mad. You know, every country's police forces are up to that. Uh, To think we're not is a little naive. Oh, well, Roger Rogerson is currently in jail for murder. Well, you know, so imagine if now extrapolate back. You know, honestly. Thank you to our guest this week, Ray Mooney. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the ACAST Creator Network. 
Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.